Bibles, would you please turn or scroll to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. If you're wondering where Luke is, it's in the New Testament, second half of your Bible, third book in your New Testament. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 20 to start off with, although we're not going to end there today. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. This is our game passage. For those of you who are following along in our daily Bible game booklets, we are going through this passage. Uh, this was just a couple days ago. Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. Would you help me preach in this place, Proactive Church? And let's look, let's go into this message, and let's go into the Word of God together. I'm going to everyone just to stand real quick. Could you just stand real quick as we read the Word of God? Just a, a little way that we want to. We can read God's Word sitting. We can read God's Word standing. We can read God's Word lying down. But here at service, we want to start off by just looking into the Word of God together. Uh, and so let's do that together with focus, with thankfulness. Uh, let's do that together right now. Read this as we it says, Some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to Jesus with the question, Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. In the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Please have your seats. Please have your seats. This morning, uh, we're looking into a fascinating, fascinating piece in the Bible today. And before I give you the title of today's passage, let me just give you uh, a little background as to what we've just read. See, what's going on in this passage we just read is that Jesus, he's confronted by a group called the Sadducees. Everyone say the Sadducees. And see, during Jesus' ministry, he's confronted with all sorts of groups who opposed him, who criticized him. You've got the Pharisees, you've got the teachers of the law, you've got the chief priests. Another group was called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees apparently began as a group of priests who found their ancestry through a guy, a priest called Zadok, who you can, learn, you can read about in First Kings. And over time, this group became a fairly powerful group, not just of priests, but more and more they would include aristocrats and, and wealthy people from Israel into the group. They sort of like a rich man's club. And see, the thing about the Sadducees was is this, that Sadducees did not typically believe in all the scriptures. They just believed in a few of the scriptures. They believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Pentateuch. They didn't believe in anything really supernatural, so they didn't really believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They certainly didn't believe in any kind of resurrection. And so when the Sadducees asked Jesus about this question, this weird question of, oh, say you have this woman who is married to a guy, they don't have children, and then he dies, and then he, she marries a second person, and a third guy, and a fourth guy, and a fifth guy, and a sixth guy, seventh guy. They all don't have children, and they all die. Well, whose wife is she going to be at the resurrection? It's a weird question to ask, and the reason why the Sadducees are asking that question is not because they're really curious. It's not really because they believe that a situation like that is going to happen, but it's because they are being a bit sarcastic 
about the whole idea of resurrection. They think it's kind of absurd that anyone would believe in the resurrection. And so they ask this question in a way to poke fun at the idea of resurrection and to put Jesus in an awkward spot. But Jesus handles their question brilliantly. First, he identifies the wrong assumption that they've made, that the Sadducees are making, that you know, life on earth is not going to be exactly the same as life in heaven. But then he goes on to look at the very scriptures that the Sadducees themselves believe. And he shows that in those scriptures, there is, there is teaching on the resurrection. And so he's speaking their language. And he, here's the other thing, is that he's using the scriptures to show that there is, that there's a possibility of resurrection. But how many of us know that if you know the life and the history of Jesus, that Jesus did a lot more than argue from the scriptures that there's resurrection? That of all the people who've ever founded any major movement, what makes Jesus' movement unique is the claim made by followers of his that Jesus actually resurrected himself. And that's why today's message is entitled, Resurrection, Fact, or Fiction. See, today what I want to do is I want to take this passage we've read in Luke chapter 20, and I want to use it as a springboard into talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Talk about the evidence there is for the resurrection of Jesus. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? We're going to look at the evidence for it. We're going to look at some counter-arguments against it. We're going to look at the counter-counter-arguments to it. And see, what we're going to do is this, is maybe you're here today, and you're not sure whether Jesus rose from the grave. You're not really sure about it. That's why you're here. You're exploring these questions. I'm really glad you're here, if that's you. Maybe for others of you, you're really skeptical of the idea. You don't believe that at all. You think, man, no one can resurrect. Jesus couldn't resurrect. And I'm hoping that this message is going to be a good challenge for you, and it may even cause you to reconsider what you're thinking today. For those of you here who've grown up in church, and you've heard and believed that, oh yeah, Jesus died and he rose again, you know, and you've never really questioned it, this message is for you as well, because what if someone came up to you, and they came up to you and said, well, you're a Christian, right? Yes. Yeah, you believe in Jesus, right? Yes. You believe Jesus died, yeah? Yes. Do you believe Jesus rose again? Yes. How do you know? What, what proof do you have? And see, you and I, if we just come and go, oh, well, that's just what we teach at church, See, that wouldn't be very convincing at all. If you want to be someone who's able to give a reason for the hope that you have, then we want to be a little bit better at responding to questions like that. And so that's why this message is especially important, especially as we go into Easter season. See, the question of did Jesus rise from the dead or not is so incredibly important. In fact, it is difficult to overstate its importance. Paul, one of the apostles and missionaries in the New Testament, he explains just how important this issue is. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 20 with me right now. What does it say? It says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. See, what is Paul saying? He's saying that the question of did Jesus rise from the grave or not is so crucial to Christianity. In fact, Christianity hinges on the answer to that question because if Jesus Christ did not in fact rise from the dead, what does that mean? It means that you don't need to take Jesus' words very seriously at all. He who made all these claims that, yeah, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be buried, and on the 30th, I'm going to rise again. If that didn't happen, then you almost have to take uh, you know, Jesus' words with a grain of salt every time 
time you hear him speak. That, that's what happens if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, what that means is all those predictions that he made about him you know, being able to give you eternal life, all those things you have to now really question, is he lying? Is he a lunatic? Is he crazy? Because he's certainly not telling the truth. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, what that means is that Jesus can't give you the eternal life he promised because he himself is still dead. If, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, that means that he did not conquer death. Death still won over Jesus. There's no basis for having hope after death in Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that means that Jesus' sacrifice for our sins was not sufficient to save you from your sins, and so we're still condemned for our sins. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the grave, what that means is that Jesus is not God, a claim that he made over and over again. You know, often we often say, you know, if you want to know what God is like, then look at Jesus. Jesus is the perfect reflection of the Father. But if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we can't say that anymore. It's because Jesus would have just been nothing more than a mere man. See, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, what that means is that Christianity is just another religion of people following a dead leader. And if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, what that means is that what Christianity offers in terms of hope beyond the grave is a false hope. It might sound great, but it's false. And as, as Paul himself would say, is that if that was the case, we are to be pitied more than anyone else in this world. That's if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, what that means is that Jesus was telling the truth. Is that Jesus knows something about life after death, and you can trust what he says about it. If Jesus really did rise from the grave, what that means is that when Jesus promised that he could give you new and eternal life, that is, that's not an empty promise. That's a promise you can rely on and bet your life on. If Jesus Christ did rise from the grave, that means that Jesus is not some ordinary human being. Rather, he's proven in the most powerful way who he claimed to be, which is the Son of God. If Jesus rose from the grave, that means that death has been defeated, that there truly is hope beyond the grave, that Jesus can forgive your sins, that his sacrifice was enough, that Jesus can give you hope that is stronger than death, and that his words carry more weight than any dead leader who didn't rise from the dead. These are the stakes that we're dealing with when we're talking about this question of did Jesus rise from the grave? It couldn't get any bigger than this. That's why Josh McDowell, he's the author of uh, a, a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He writes this. He says, the resurrection of Jesus was either the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoax or the most remarkable fact of history. So which one is it? Is it the most remarkable fact of history or is it a hoax? See, when you look on the internet, when you talk to people on the street, you're going to find all sorts of views on the resurrection. On one hand, you have people who object to the idea that Jesus actually physically rose from the grave. They'll be like, where's the evidence for that? What about all the other alternative explanations we can give for you know, the stuff that the Bible says. Maybe it was a hallucination. Maybe it was a ghost. You know, maybe the, the gospel writers were just making stuff up. It, was, it wasn't so long ago after the fact of you know, all these things happening in Jesus' life that they came up with these stories. If Jesus is alive, why doesn't he just show himself right now? That's what a lot of people ask today. On the other hand, you have literally billions upon billions of Christians who profess faith in a Savior who they claim rose again. And the question is, who's right? Who's right? See, Lee Strobel, he was a journalist and an editor for the legal department of the Chicago Tribune. And Lee Strobel, he was a staunch atheist. He thought the idea of there being this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving creator of the universe was just a silly idea. And he thought if Jesus actually existed, Jesus was probably a nice guy. He was probably a good teacher, but he certainly wasn't the son of God. That's what he believed as an atheist. Lee's wife 
was an agnostic. She wasn't sure. She wasn't sure if there was a God, but she was curious. She started going to church, and the moment Lee found out that his wife, Leslie, was going to church, it really concerned him. He thought to himself, you know what? I didn't sign up to be married to a religious prude. What are you doing, honey? And all of a sudden, he was very, very tense and anxious about the fact that Leslie was going to church every Sunday. Eventually, though, Lee had to be honest and, re- and, and acknowledge that actually she, he was seeing some really positive changes in Leslie's life after she started going to church. Started seeing that you know, she has got, she's a lot more positive about life, a lot more hopeful about life. And, and for him, he thought, you know what, I, I really got to set her straight because, you know, I need to let her know this is really not true. And so what he did is he went on this investigative journey as a journalist, as a legal journalist. He went on this investigative journey to try to expose the illogical thinking of Christians when it came to the resurrection, when it came to the Bible. And in fact, there were two big, what he calls front burner questions on his mind when he's going on this investigative journey. The first was concerning the New Testament, this Bible that you have in your hands right now. So he thought, you know, can I really trust what the New Testament says about Jesus? How do I know that it is reliable history that I can rely on? You know, aren't there contradictions in the Bible? Weren't the Gospels written so long after the events of Jesus' life, and, and, and how could they remember everything so accurately? You know, what about all the other books that didn't make it into the Bible, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter? Why them and not, the, not, not those ones? You know, weren't the Gospel writers trying to push some kind of religious or political agenda so they kind of just stretch the truth in different ways? And so he had all these questions, and yet when he started to research each of these questions, started to ask experts in these different fields, he found that a lot of his criticisms were unfounded, and that there were actually very good, excellent reasons to believe in the historical reliability of the New Testament, and that it has accurate information about Jesus. He discovered that the New Testament, in fact, is probably, arguably, but most probably, the most reliable ancient historical document in all of history. And he went on to look at the second big front burner question of his, which is about the resurrection of Jesus. How do I know that Jesus really rose from the grave? How do I know it wasn't a hoax or a myth? And by taking a closer look at the evidence, Lee Strobel went from being an atheist and a skeptic who was trying to unconvert his wife to becoming a believer in the resurrection, a believer in Jesus Christ. And in fact, he would summarize his journey from from skepticism to faith in a book called The Case for Christ, which has since become a feature film. And see, let me try to summarize some of the evidence that Lee Strobel looked at that we're going to look at today as well. See, today the argument we're going to make for the resurrection of Jesus Christ hinges on three important pieces of evidence. The three are this. Number one, it's the empty tomb. Number two, it's Jesus' appearances after his death. And number three, it's the rise of Christianity. And see, I'm going to put it to you today that the best explanation for all three of these things is that Jesus rose from the grave. For those of you who are skeptical about the resurrection, it's not enough just to say, oh, it could never have happened. you got to battle with and combat and wrestle with these three facts and ask yourself, do I have a better explanation for these things than the theory or the idea that Jesus rose again? Is there a better explanation out there? We're going to look at these each one, one by one. I hope you can find this very helpful today. Number one is this. Write this down. Jesus' resurrection is the best explanation for why his tomb was empty. You've got to understand this. Jesus, he's crucified on the cross. He's killed. They take down his body. 
And according to Jewish burial customs, they wrap it in about 75 to 100 pounds of linens and spices. They wrap it all around his body, including his head. And, and they, they place him in the tomb of a rich man called Joseph of Arimathea, who was a follower of Jesus and who gifted his tomb to Jesus, let Jesus use his tomb. And so they take Jesus' dead corpse. They place it in this tomb. They take a rock, which is about two tons heavy, and they take several men to push that stone and said, take that stone, they put it in front of the tomb where Jesus' body is laid. And not just that, but according to the Gospel of Matthew, that is that soldiers and a Roman seal were placed to guard the tomb from being tampered. Soldiers are there standing guard to make sure no one tampers with it. A Roman seal, I'm not, I don't mean a, ar, 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 I don't mean a Roman seal that way, but a seal meaning a piece of clay, a piece of wax that is burned onto the rock, usually with an inscription to say anyone who tampers with this is, is violating the law. And so there's, it's, it's a well-protected, it's a well-protected tomb. And on the third day after all this takes place, at, on the third day after Jesus is placed in the tomb, this is what happens. Look at Mark chapter 16, 1 to 6 with me. What does it say? It says, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. See, I want, one thing I want you to notice is this. If you read all four Gospels in the New Testament, you're going to find that all four, gospel, all, all four Gospel writers, they say something very, very important. They say that women were the first to notice that Jesus' tomb was empty. That it was the women, the women followers of Jesus, who first noticed the tomb was empty. Now, the fact that the women were the first witnesses of Jesus' empty tomb actually lends credibility to the Gospels. Do you know Why? It's because back in Jesus' day, women were not allowed to give testimony in court. If you were a woman and you saw a murder, even if you were an eyewitness to that crime, you were not allowed to go to a court and testify about what you saw because you were not seen as a legitimate or a credible witness. That's the way that they viewed women back then. And, and, and here's the thing, is that if you were making up the story that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and his tomb was empty. If you were making up the story, the last thing you would say is that, oh, the first witnesses of the empty tomb, they were women. They wouldn't say that. But the only reason why the gospel writers say it was women who found the empty tomb is because that's exactly what happened. And, and in so doing, the gospel writers, in fact, were also in many ways ahead of their time because in so doing, they effectively were advancing the rights of women and their legal standing as well. And all the women in this place said, amen. And that's, that's just, sometimes the Bible is just ahead of its time. And see, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and you got this empty tomb, how do you explain this empty tomb. People have tried to come up with different alternative theories as to what happened. Some people say, oh, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Well, first of all, I think that's pretty unlikely. Family members and friends of Jesus, followers of Jesus, they would know where Jesus' tomb is. If they got it wrong once, they will get it right the next time. But even more than that, all skeptics had to do, if the, the followers of Jesus went to the wrong tomb, all they had to do was go to the right tomb. 
and they can say, hey, guys, you went to the wrong tomb. Your GPS was wrong. And here, see, this is the correct tomb. His body is still inside. End of story. No further issue. And so highly unlikely that they went to the wrong tomb. I wouldn't even consider this an alternative theory. Another one that people say is, oh, maybe Jesus didn't really die. And see, in other words, Jesus didn't die on the cross. He just swooned. He fainted. He passed out. And I would submit to you today, that is wishful thinking. Keep this in mind. Jesus was sentenced by the Roman government to die. And if there's anything that the Roman government was good at, it was killing people. They were famous for it. They were notorious for it. They were experts at it. In fact, his executioners were Roman soldiers who were essentially professional killers who were under orders from the Roman government to make sure that people who are crucified died from that crucifixion. The, the word excruciating, when I say, oh, my life is excruciating, you know where that word comes from? It comes from the word crucifixion because crucifixion was a form, it was the worst form of torture available in the Roman government. And when you were crucified on the cross, you'd be nailed by your hands and your feet to a wooden cross and the whole goal was to have you hang there until you were so tired you could no longer lift yourself up with your legs to breathe and you just basically slowly die of of asphyxiation because you are just so tired and you can't move anymore and see that's what Jesus went through prior to his crucifixion he was flogged they took a cat of nine tails which are whips which are you know decorated with broken glass and and other nasty stuff and they 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 would whip Jesus ripping out flesh from his body and there are people who would die from the flogging itself but in addition to the flogging he's crucified in in addition to the crucifixion they they go through several tests to make sure Jesus is dead one of those tests is that they take a spear they shove it through Jesus' side through his ribcage and likely into his heart exploding his heart when the spear comes out blood and water come out some medical practitioners say that it was probably blood and serum from, that, that, from his body that came out which were, were suggesting that he had completely died and, and one, one of the crazy things about it is this is that usually when people are crucified on a cross what, what the soldiers would do to make it that much faster for them to die is they would break their bones they break their bones so that they have nothing to stand on anymore. They're in even more pain. And as a result, they would just die more quickly. By the time they got to Jesus, they noticed he was already dead. And, and it also fulfills a prophecy in, in the Old Testament how, of how not a single bone will be broken of his. Jesus had died. And not just that, they take him off of that cross. They put him in about 75 to 100 pounds of linens and spices. And he's got no medical attention, no food, no water. He's got hardly any room to breathe because his whole, his whole body is wrapped in, in, in linens. They put him all alone in a tomb for three days with no one to take care of him. And you think a normal human being would survive that? No, a normal human being would not survive that. And Jesus didn't survive. He died on the cross. And see, so how plausible is it that Jesus would then, you know, be in the tomb and, and he's, he hasn't died yet? And he's, 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 just reco- he's, he's just fainted. He fell asleep. And then he recovers. He gets up. And, and he, he somehow, you know, pushes the stone single-handedly. He, he does some holy taekwondo on, 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 the, on, the, on, on the Roman guards. And, 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 and he's able to get out that way. It is highly unlikely. It is wishful thinking. And so if those people say, oh, Jesus didn't really die, I think you have got to think again. Another one that some people say is, oh, maybe someone stole Jesus' body. 
And in fact, that's what the women followers of Jesus, when they first saw the empty tomb, that's what they assumed. They're like, oh, someone has taken away the Lord's body, and we don't know where they put him. They, they assumed that someone stole him. That's the rumor, in fact, that Jesus' opponents would, 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 would spread of, about what happened. You know, one of my favorite movies is Ocean's Eleven. Have you all seen that movie before? You've got, you got, you got some good-looking guys in that movie. There's, there's George Clooney. There's Brad Pitt. There's Matt Damon. Julia Roberts is in that movie as well. And th- if you know the story of Ocean's Eleven, you know that it is a story about Danny Ocean and 11 other men who put on this very elaborate heist to rob a casino in Las Vegas. And you know, some people have developed this theory, this conspiracy theory, that just like Ocean's Eleven, you've got Jesus' Eleven. That you've got, you know, his 12 disciples minus Judas, so Jesus is 11. And, and they, they, they overcome the Roman guards with some elaborate plan that somehow in the midst of serving the poor and teaching about peace and nonviolence, that somehow Jesus also had the time to teach his disciples some holy taekwondo. And they did, they did that. They, they, they steal the, they, they, they move the, the, the stone. They overcome the guards. They, they steal the body of Jesus. And still they have time to neatly fold his headdress and his linens like origami and leave it that way. And they go off. They dispose of the dead body somewhere, and they start preaching everyone, oh, Jesus is alive! Jesus is risen! And see, that makes for a very entertaining script, but the fact is this, it is highly unlikely. Keep in mind, all 11 disciples died for their faith later on. And let me ask you this question. Why would anyone die for something that they knew to be a lie? Why would they? We don't lie to get ourselves into trouble. We lie to get ourselves out of trouble when we do. And see, why would the 11 disciples steal Jesus' body and make up this lie that, oh, Jesus risen, and then they, they die for that lie? It doesn't make any sense. What's more likely is that the disciples, the reason why they went to their graves for their faith is because they were convinced to the core of the truth that Jesus has risen again. And see, not only that, you know, even if someone did manage to steal Jesus' body from the tomb and dispose of it, burn it, throw in the ocean somehow, why then does Jesus physically appear alive to so many people later on? We're going to talk about that next. Number two is this. That brings us to our second point. Write this down. Jesus' resurrection is the best explanation for why Jesus appeared physically alive to over 500 people after his death in different places and in different times. See, get this, to prove that he had physically resurrected. Jesus didn't just send a text to people going, I'm back. Jesus didn't just update his Facebook account and say, resurrected. He didn't just go post pictures on Instagram of his hands and his feet with nail marks in them. He physically appeared to people alive. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8 with me. Would you read with me in a big, loud voice? What does it say? It says, for what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. See, who's writing here? See, Paul, the apostle is writing here, and this is just a few years after Jesus' death. Paul is listing some of the eyewitnesses to whom Jesus appeared after his death. And you want to notice this. If you look at this list, if you kind of go through the list and scroll through the list, you'll notice that Jesus, he appeared to small groups. He appeared to large groups. He appeared to individuals. He appeared to family members. He appeared to friends. He appeared to skeptics. He appeared to enemies of his. He appeared to strangers. And see, Verses 5 and 6, read that with me right now. What does it say? It says, And that he appeared to Peter, 
and then to the 12, verse 6. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. If you have that verse in front of you, could you underline the words, most of whom are still living? Why does, Jesus, why does Paul say most of whom are still living? It's because of this. He's saying, hey, if you doubt what I'm saying, these eyewitnesses are still around today. You can ask them. He's telling the church in Corinth. See, some people, they say, oh, you know, the resurrection of Jesus was fabricated. It's just a legend that was made up so many years after Jesus died. You know, you know it was just it developed over centuries. You know, that just people just came up with that idea. And, you know, this is the thing. Historians of legends, um, you know, experts on the issue of legends, they find that legends will often take a very, very long, long, long time to develop, sometimes centuries to develop. Here, Paul is writing about Jesus' resurrection just years after Jesus' death. He's, in fact, passing on what he learned, almost like it's a creed that he learned from the people who came before him who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. And he's saying that this is what we teach today, is that Jesus died and he rose again. There wasn't enough time for legends to develop in just a matter of a few years. And Paul writes, in case you doubt what I'm saying, hey, what? You know what? Those eyewitnesses, so many of them are still alive today. Those some have fallen asleep, i.e. died. Most of them are still alive. And so you can just go and ask them. And notice this. Jesus didn't just appear to his followers. He also appeared to people who didn't believe in him, who only became believers after they saw him resurrected. Let me give you an example. Look at verse 7. It says, then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to James. Who's James? See, James was Jesus' half-brother. And for all of Jesus' life, James grew up with Jesus and Jesus was his bigger, older brother, and James did not believe for all of Jesus' life until his death that Jesus, his older brother, was the Son of God. And, you know, in some ways, I guess maybe you could understand, if you have a brother or a sister, and they tell you, hey, I'm God, how much would it take you to believe in them? You're like, you're not God. I've grown up with you. I've seen you naked. You are not God, right? And, and see, James was very, very sarcastic, about Jesus' ministry. He'd be, he'd be saying stuff like, oh, you want to be a public figure? Go, you should go to Jerusalem right now. What are you waiting for? And, and it's because he was really not a believer in Jesus. He didn't believe his older brother was the son of God. But then, after Jesus dies, he physically appears alive to James, and James becomes a believer. And later on, he becomes one of the most important leaders in the church. And later on, he would die for his faith. He would die for the belief that his brother was God. What would it take for you to do something like that? See, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how do you explain his multiple appearances in different times, in different places, to over 500 people, not just to people who already believed in him, but people who didn't believe in him and who only did after his death? See, well, maybe some people say, oh, maybe people, maybe people were hallucinating. Maybe it was all a hallucination. You know, if you ask a psychologist or psychiatrist, they'll tell you that a hallucination is a personal experience. It's not something that groups, big groups of people will all have the same hallucination. You're saying that you know, over 500 people, disciples, enemies of Christ, family members, strangers, at different times and different places, they were all having the same hallucination and that they were all on the same Jesus drug? Not likely. Now, the people, when the people say this, oh, maybe it wasn't a physical resurrection. Maybe Jesus was coming to them as a vision or as a ghost, or maybe he just rose in our hearts in this very romantic way to say it. But here's the thing. Look at Luke chapter 24, 36 to 48 with me right now. What does it say? Church, would you help me read this in the big, loud voice right now? What does it say? It says, while they were still talking about this, 
Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I had told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. See, what's going on is that Jesus, this is not the only time, but on a number of occasions, when you read the Gospels, you'll find on a number of occasions, Jesus appears physically to people, and he goes out of his way to show that, hey, I'm not just a ghost you're looking at right now. I'm not just a vision. I'm not just a hologram, but I am physically alive before you. And so he's eating in front of people. He's touching them. He's talking with them. He's walking with them. He's hugging them. He's doing Bible study with them. He's praying for them. He's blessing them. He's doing these things, and he's not appearing in a coma. He's not crippled. He's not in an ICU hospital gown, but he is physically alive. In fact, healthier and more alive than he's ever been. That was Jesus appearing to these people. And the fact that Jesus appeared on so many occasions to so many different people over the course of 40 days after his death, that is compelling evidence to consider as well. Is this helpful in this place so far? Number three. Number three is this. Jesus' resurrection is the best explanation for the disciples' transformation and the rise of Christianity. See, some people that say, you know what? Jesus and his resurrection, this was actually nothing new, guys. You know, in fact, other religions were teaching it at that time about, you know, some savior resurrecting. And so, you know what? Maybe Christianity just borrowed the idea of resurrection from other religions. And see, here's the thing. You've got to understand. If you understand the spiritual and religious landscape of Jesus' time at that time, you've got to understand this. No one back in Jesus' day taught the kind of resurrection that Jesus went through. See, the Greeks, for example, they believed that the whole purpose of life is to escape the body. They thought of, you know, the body, material things as being bad and evil. They thought the spirit is good and pure. And so the body was seen as the prison of the soul. And when you could escape that prison, then that is good. And so, you know, it would be horrifying and undesirable, let alone impossible in the mind of a Greek to think of someone who would die and then rise again in the same body. To them, they'd be like, ew. They wouldn't want to do that. They didn't teach that. Jews believed in a resurrection, but not in, in any way close to what Jesus went through. You know what the Jews believed about resurrection? They believed that, that at the end of time, at the end of the world, there would be a resurrection of all of God's people from their graves, all of God's people, and that this would signify that the world was coming to an end, but they never, ever thought, never, never taught that one person in the middle of time would die and be resurrected while the rest of people live in sickness and go through suffering and die themselves. And that's why the disciples, they're Jews, they have the toughest time wrapping their, their minds around this idea, this idea that Jesus had actually physically risen because they had no paradigm for it. They were never taught anything like this. And that's why they had such a hard time to believe that Jesus actually rose. And see, those who taught about reincarnation, they didn't teach that you died 
and then your spirit came and it went back into the same body and you're reincarnating in the same body. That's not even reincarnation. See, and, and, and so there was no precedent for this. There was no previous teaching on something like this. You'll keep in mind also that back in Jesus' day, you know, Jesus wasn't the only one claiming to be a Messiah. During that time, during that century even, historians of that time would say that there are different groups that would follow certain teachers, each claiming to be the Messiah, until the day that that leader dies, and then you never hear about that group again. You never hear about them again. And none of them, none of them, not a single other group would say, oh yeah, our teacher rose again. He's alive. No, they would just go on back to their normal lives and go, I guess we were wrong. But see, when Jesus died, and when people started to see his empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus, they're like, we have never seen anything like this before. See, and, and, and not, not just that, but, you know, we see how the disciples, how they, because they've seen Jesus, their lives are completely transformed. When you read the Gospels, it's just sort of almost like, I sometimes feel bad for the disciples, just how many embarrassing moments the disciples have in the Gospels. It's almost like looking at, you know, America's Funniest Home Videos when I'm reading the Gospels sometimes, of all the different mistakes the disciples made, all the ways that they were selfish and the, all the ways that they were distracted, all the ways that they were fearful. And, and, but the funny thing, the crazy thing is that after Jesus' death, many of them, they're kind of just like, they, they flee. They're like, I guess we were wrong as well. I guess we're just one more group that got it wrong. They go back to the stuff they're doing. Peter goes back fishing, goes back to his old job. But then when they see Jesus resurrected, it turns their lives around like nothing else. And they would end up living these lives with crazy courage, crazy boldness, crazy selflessness, and to the point where they would die for their belief that Jesus is God and that he rose again. And see, not only that, not only was that the only transformation, but you got to understand this, is that these disciples, they are Jews who have centuries upon centuries, in fact, thousands of years of history with their culture, with their religious beliefs. And it's just amazing that within just five weeks after Jesus' crucifixion, you find thousands of Jews abandoning their thousand-year-old most cherished beliefs as Jews in order to worship Jesus. For example, you've got all their lives, Jews being taught, you don't worship a human being. That's blasphemy. That's idolatry. And yet now you have thousands of Jews worshiping this man called Jesus who is also the Son of God. You've got, you know, all their lives, these Jews being taught that they need to offer sacrifices for their sins. But you know what happens? After Jesus rose again, they stop offering those sacrifices. They're so confident, you know what? I don't need to offer my own sacrifices to God anymore because I can never earn my way to God anyways. But Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, once and for all, was enough to pay for my sins. And so no further sacrifice is necessary. I'm not going to give any more sacrifices. It's a huge risk. It's a huge, you're, you're, you're basically betting your salvation. You're betting your eternity on Jesus. Another thing, all their lives, they were taught, you know, when's the, when's the time to go to synagogue and to temple? It's the Sabbath. It is Saturday. And even to this day, you know, Jews will often go to synagogue on Saturday. You know what they do? They change it. They're like, you know what? We're not going to go and just worship on Saturday. We're going we're to move it to Sunday, the day when Jesus was resurrected. And, and you know, not, not just that, Christianity begins from just 120 followers in an upper room, it has become the largest movement of all time. The greatest movement of all time. Billions upon billions upon billions of people alive today and in the past. And see, instead of enshrining Jesus' tomb, venerating Jesus' tomb and making it look all pretty and nice and giving flowers every day, they forget about Jesus' tomb. And instead, they start doing something called communion, where they start remembering what Jesus Christ died on the cross to remember his death. 
and then they do something called baptism to celebrate his life and his resurrection, something that was never done prior to that. And, and you know, you, you've got, you know, Jesus, now he's being preached all over. He's alive. He's risen. He's not dead anymore. And they would preach it regardless of the consequences that they would face, even if it meant dying to hang on to that belief. And see, here's the thing. For these Jews to abandon such deeply held beliefs and practices and to adopt a completely new paradigm of thinking, to adopt a completely new way of living that had never been heard of before, and later to give up their lives for what they believed to be true, it's tough to imagine that they could have done that believing it was a lie. It's tough to imagine that what could have caused them to do it if it weren't for them honestly believing that Jesus is alive. And see, the, I, I'm going to put it to you again then, is that the best explanation for, for why Jesus' tomb is empty, for why hundreds of people at different times and different places saw Jesus physically alive after his death, why Christianity rose to become the greatest movement history has ever seen, is because Jesus has risen again, that he rose again. Now, you might be saying, well, J.B., I don't really care about any of this. The fact is, it's just impossible for anyone to rise from the dead. I don't care what the evidence says. It's just impossible. That's what people back in Jesus' day believed as well. That's why they had such a hard time believing it. How could it be? But then they looked at the evidence, and they were just overwhelmed, going, you know what? I guess it is possible. You know, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, he was the Royal Professor of Law at Harvard University. He's known as one of the greatest legal minds that's ever lived. And he wrote a treatise on evidence that is having huge influence on legal students and on lawyers to this day. And Dr. Greenleaf, he did this thorough evaluation of the four Gospels. And he tried to test just how well is, how, how good is the evidence that they would provide? How much would it hold up in a court of law? And you know what he concluded? He wrote this. He said, it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths that they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. That's what he said. Here's another guy called E.M. Blakelock. He was the chair of classics at Auckland University. He says this. He says, I claim to be a historian. My approach to classics is historical. And I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. Thomas Arnold, chair of modern history at Oxford University, says this. He says, I've been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine the way the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Finally, Lord Darling. Uh, Lord Darling, he was the former Chief Justice of England, uh, and I remember studying, when I was in law school, I remember studying decisions of Lord Darling, and, and he, he, he wrote this when he studied the resurrection. He said, on that greatest point of Jesus' resurrection, we're not merely asked to have faith. In its favor as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. See, what can we learn from all this? What does this mean for all of us? It's that since Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, then it means something to you and to me. How should we live because of it? Let me end with this today. Number one is this. Since Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, number one, believe what Jesus says. Believe what Jesus says. Believe what Jesus says. John eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus says this. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Romans 10 verse 9. 
says this, is that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, because of Jesus' resurrection, we can have confidence in what Jesus says. We can believe that what he says is true, that we can have confidence that because of Jesus, there is forgiveness for our sins, that because of Jesus, there is eternal life and hope beyond the grave, that when you die, you're not leaving home, you're going home to heaven. And you know, skeptics will sometimes say, well, if Jesus resurrected and is alive today, why doesn't Jesus just show himself already to me? He showed himself to Paul, right? Why doesn't he show himself to me? You know, if, if that's going to help me to believe in him, why doesn't he just do that already? And see, Jesus actually answered this question himself. In Luke chapter 16, and some of you guys have read this before, this past month, he tells the story of this rich man and this beggar. Do you remember that? And once, you know, the, 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 the Jesus' story is that these, these two men, one's a very poor beggar, one's a very rich man. Poor, poor man, his name is Lazarus. Rich man, we don't know his name. But both of them die. On the same day, they both die. The rich man is in hell. The beggar called Lazarus, he's in heaven hanging out with a guy called Abraham, one of Israel's forefathers, in heaven. And the rich man, he sees Abraham and the beggar. This is a story. He sees Abraham and the beggar, Lazarus, in heaven. And he's like, please, Abraham, save me from this agony. And Abraham says, I can't save you. There's an infinite gap between us and you that we can't cross. And, you know, the rich man says, well, then send Lazarus to my brother's. And let them know that they don't want to come to where I am so that they can go to where you are. He's even from hell trying to command Lazarus the beggar. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the word of God. Listen to that. Then the rich man says, no, no, they won't listen to that. But if someone is, if, if, you, if, you, if they send someone back from the dead to, to see them, they will believe. And, you want, and then, and then what, what's, what's Jesus' conclusion at the end of this parable? Look at Luke chapter 16, verse 31. He says this. He says, read it with me. He says, he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. See, what's the lesson here? The lesson here is this, is that so much depends on the attitude of your heart. So much depends on the attitude of your heart. You can say, oh yeah, if, if, if you know, Jesus is alive, why doesn't he just show himself to me right now? I can, do, I can guarantee you this. If you have a really hard heart toward God and you don't really want to believe, you're not really that open, Jesus himself could be staring you in the face, preaching right at you, and you will find some kind of excuse to rationalize why it's not Jesus. Oh yeah, it's a ghost, it's a hallucination, I just had some bad pizza, you know, it's just something like that. I, I, I don't think it's really Jesus. Even if Jesus were to send himself back from the dead to you, you would be, oh, you know what? I don't know about that. I don't know about that. You will find some way because that's what a hardened heart will do. They'll find some way to get around it. But if you've got a soft heart, Jesus says, if you've got a soft heart, you don't even need to see Jesus physically alive and resurrected. You will know him when you have an open heart and read the word of God. You will know him when you're just open to the things that God is already doing in your life. And he's, because he's already leading you to Jesus. Jesus, if you will, is already appearing to you in ways that maybe you've taken for granted. The question is the attitude of your heart. If you believe us, say amen. And see, at the end of the day, God has given us all the evidence we need to have faith. And see, for Lee Strobel, the guy that we talked about earlier, after looking at the evidence, it took more. He, he, looked, he, he, he did this, this little this chart. He put down all the reasons why he shouldn't believe, and he put down all the reasons why he should believe that Jesus rose from the grave. He matched them both, and he looked at both, and both reasons, both sets of reasons, and he came to the conclusion that, you know what? I need to make a bigger leap and have, in some ways, more faith to believe that Jesus didn't rise than that Jesus did. And it's because... 
when you've got a heart that's open. You don't, you're going to take the stuff that God has already given you and you will allow it to lead you to Jesus. If you have a heart that's hard, nothing's going to lead you to Jesus. That's why. Number two, so believe what Jesus says. Number two, believe that through Jesus Christ, there is power to overcome every difficulty. See, maybe you're going through a difficulty right now. Maybe it's a difficult, uncertain, worrisome, stressful season for you. I got to tell you this. If Jesus Christ conquered the biggest problem of all, which is sin and death, and if Jesus Christ lives in you as a follower of Jesus, then what does that mean? It means that no problem is too big for you. There's no uncertainty that's too much for you. There's no issue that you can't overcome by the power of God in your life. Look at Ephesians 1, 19 to 20 with me and read it in loud voice. 1, 2, 3, it says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. I'm here to tell you today, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you as well. Believe it or not, but believe it. And what that means is you might be going through marriage problems right now, but the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you, and you can overcome that problem. You might be going through incredible stress because of your health or the health of someone you love. You might be going through some incredible uncertainty about your future right now. You might be going through some kind of financial issue right now that you don't know how to solve. You might be going through some kind of relationship problem that you have no answer for, but guess what? You have the same power that Jesus had, and therefore you can rise again from everything, from every defeat, from every problem, not because you are God, but because God, by his power, by his spirit, lives on the inside of you. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you as well. Come on, give God a big hand, a big shout in this place right now. Turn your name, give him a high five and say, with Jesus, you can overcome. With Jesus, you can overcome. Finally, because Jesus Christ rose again and is alive today, live for Jesus Christ. Don't live for yourself. Don't live for your own status. Don't live for your own comfort. Don't live for your own convenience. Don't live for something smaller. Don't live for money. Don't live for pleasure. Don't live for these things that are not going to satisfy you. Live for Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he proved who he is and who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God. And the first time he came, he came as a suffering servant to die on the cross for our sins. But now he's at the right hand of the throne of God that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And one day he's coming back, not as a suffering servant anymore, but as the victorious, conquering king that he is. Jesus Christ is worthy of your life. Jesus Christ is worthy of your service. Jesus Christ is worthy of your obedience. So live for him. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, last verse for today, it says, read it with me, it says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Turn to your and say, live for him. Live for him. Don't live for yourself, but live for him. Let me end with this one last thought for you today is that of all the evidence that we've been talking about today, I'm going to submit to you today that when it comes to the people in your life, your husband, your wife, your kids, your coworkers, your classmates, your friends, that the best evidence you can give that Jesus rose again and that Jesus is alive is through a life changed by the power of God. 
you know, Lee Strobel, he went through all this evidence, went through years of just investigating all of his questions, looking up the research, and he eventually went from skepticism to faith. But Lee Strobel had a five-year-old daughter, and one day they're at church, and one day she's talking to some of her uh, kind of Sunday school teachers in her kids' church there, and they're talking to her, and uh, she said this, uh, she said this to her teacher. She said, do you know I believe in Jesus? And they're like, why do you believe in Jesus? It's beca- and she said, it's because I want Jesus to do in me what he did in my dad. I want Jesus to do in me what he did in my dad. In other words, she saw a change. She didn't see the you know, pros and the cons and, and going through all that research. All she saw was a change in her dad. That dad is happier. That dad's less of a complainer. That dad is more peaceful. That dad's got purpose now. That dad has got a better temper. That dad and mom, they've got a happier marriage. That, that, that for some reason, life is so much better with him now. And because of that, I believe in Jesus. And it goes to show that the best evidence you can give that Jesus rose again and is alive is through your life changed by the power of God. And so this summer, or this not, not even this summer, this spring, this spring, as we hit Easter, we've got an opportunity to live for Jesus. Amen? We've got an opportunity to share with people who don't normally step into church, who maybe have questions, just like Lee Strobel had questions. We have an opportunity to share with them the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Some of them are going through terrible suffering right now. Some of them are asking the very questions that Lee Strobel is asking. And God has placed it in your care to say, I want to live for Jesus. And I want to reach out to that person. Would you reach out with me to our city this coming Easter? Would you reach out with me and let's live for Jesus. And let the world know that Jesus is alive. Come on, let's give God a big hand, a big shout in this place together right now. With every head bowed, never eye closed. With every head bowed, never eye closed. I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to God today. Because hopefully from this message you know that Jesus is not just an idea. He's not just some abstract philosophy. He's not just some dead man who founded a religion. But Jesus is alive today. And because Jesus rose again from the grave, we have hope beyond the grave. Because Jesus rose again from the grave, we have forgiveness for our sins. And if you're here and you realize that you need that forgiveness from God, that you realize today that you need to ask Jesus to come and to forgive your sins. Because we can't forgive our own sins. We can't earn our way to God. No matter how good we think we are, there's no way that we could reach heaven. But when we couldn't reach heaven, heaven came reaching for us when he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins and my sins as well. And so here in this place, if you realize you need God's forgiveness and you want to invite Jesus to come and be your Savior, to forgive you of your sins, then why don't you just lift your hand to God right now. We want to pray with you and for you. Just where you're standing right now, just lift your hand to God right now. Just lift your hand to God right now. That's it. Don't worry about what your neighbor's doing. This is just between you and God. Just lift your hand and let the height of your hands reflect how much you need God today. I want you to pray this prayer with me right now. You can say, Dear Jesus. Dear Jesus. Thank you, thank you that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. That you rose again to give me life. Today, I open up my heart and say, please come in. Forgive me my sins and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I believe in you. I believe what you say. And I trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you give God a big hand, a big shout together right now?